0: to see you here. Um, For those of you who are used to these, um, are are frequent attendees at these uh, pre-show talks, you may have realized that I am not Doug Fullington. He had to be elsewhere staging a ballet, and so he's asked me to step in. Uh, My name is Annie Searcy. I'm an assistant professor of music history at the University of Washington, and a lot of my research is on ballet history. So I'm excited to talk to you today about Swan Lake, which is one of my favorite ballets, has an amazing score and choreography and I think a very interesting history uh, that speaks to what you're going to see this afternoon. Uh, So I am gonna start off by telling you a bit about the original 19th century productions of Swan Lake and then talk a bit about its 20th and 21st century history and the themes of the ballet and then I'm gonna explain to you what happens in the story so that you can understand what you're seeing. So the original uh, production, the first production of Swan Lake premiered in 1877 at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. And it had music by Pyotr Tchaikovsky, who was 36 years old and a music teacher at the Moscow Conservatory. And not particularly famous, um, which might have been one of the reasons that he took a ballet score commission, which was not um, not a particularly prestigious genre of music to be writing in, in the 19th century, Most ballet music was written by specialist ballet composers uh, who were employed by the theaters and who knew the conventions of ballet and ballet music and what they were supposed to do. And the main things that they were focused on creating in their music were beautiful and predictable melodies that would enhance but never distract from what was going on on stage. And they also focused on uh, picking the right instrument for the right moment. So that those melodies would be played by an instrument that would reflect what was going on on stage. And so Tchaikovsky must have known some of this because uh, Swan Lake does indeed have very beautiful melodies. And he's paid attention to what instrument goes where, what instrument has the solo line. So in particular in Swan Lake, you're going to hear a lot of the oboe, which opens the ballet Um, Uh, singing, uh, playing that opening theme which then comes back in various different versions and the oboe is a double reed instrument that has a slightly pinched nasally quality to it uh, that sounds kind of like a bird, (laughs) so it fits very well with the swans that are uh, on stage but it also has a sort of mysterious quality to it. And one of the things that I like about that swan theme is that it's never completely clear in the score if it's referring to the swans that you're seeing on stage or if it's referring to the magical curse that they are all under. And I think that's one of the sort of lovelier catches of the score. There are other moments where Tchaikovsky's paid attention to the instruments, so in the second act, a love duet we hear a violin and a cello sort of a high and a low voice that sort of reflects the human voice as our two main characters are falling in love so he knew some of the things to do as a ballet composer and he did them well he struggled however with other parts of the brief so um, his melodies start off sort of very uh, lovely and simple but every time they come back they tend to get more and more complicated uh, and he starts adding in sort of richer orchestration that does start potentially distracting and drawing the audience's attention. And he also really did not want to go along with the predictable, even, danceable rhythms. So whatever, he did this uh, not just in his ballet music, but also if you listen to his symphonies or his operas. Um, if there is a predictable, danceable rhythm, he likes to sort of throw a throw a curveball. So, for instance, if you hear a waltz rhythm in the ballet, so mm-pa-pa, 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 shortly in, Tchaikovsky will start going pa-pa-pa, pa-pa-pa, mm-pa-pa, mm-pa-pa, um, which adds a sort of uh, interest and complexity that we tend to really enjoy in the 20th and 21st century. When it premiered in 1877, Some people really liked it, and some people said it was too symphonic, that it uh, wasn't a danceable score. But in general, it got good reviews. Uh, The choreography was by Julius Riesinger, who was a German choreographer working in Russia, and uh, his choreography also got basically fine reviews. And everybody thought this was a perfectly fine ballet. And in the 19th century, a perfectly fine ballet was supposed to be seen for that season, and then replaced. You expected to see ballets one season, and then they were gone. Um, They did not expect to see them year after year. And so at the end of 1877, it left, and no one ever expected to see it again. And probably no one ever would have seen it again, except uh, Tchaikovsky went on to become the most famous composer in Russia, and one of the most famous composers in the world. So shortly after Swan Lake, his uh, career really started taking off. Uh, He became very well known, especially for his operas, particularly Eugene Onyegin, his symphonies, numbers four and five, uh, his piano concertos, his violin concerto, all became uh, very big hits, and he became not just the most important composer in Russia, but also uh, internationally. So he actually toured the United States at one point. So by 1890, he was this incredibly big deal in Russia, and the Marinsky Theater uh, in St. Petersburg commissioned him to write a score for his second-ever ballet, Sleeping Beauty, which premiered in 1890 with choreography by Marius Petipa, who was the most famous choreographer in Russia. And that was also a very big success. People really liked that. So when Tchaikovsky died in 1893, there was a lot of interest in reviving this then-lost ballet score of his. Um, and indeed, uh, Lev Ivanov, who was a Russian choreographer who had done most of the choreography for Tchaikovsky's third and final ballet, The Nutcracker, uh, Ivanov staged a one-act version of Swan Lake, just act two, for a memorial concert uh, commemorating Tchaikovsky's death. Critics loved that, and so Murinsky decided to stage a full-length version of Swan Lake. Uh, they kept Ivanov's act two choreography and also asked him to make act four and then uh, Petty Pod did acts one and three and that premiered in 1895 and that was a really remarkable success uh, for that production they also streamlined the story from 1877 so the 1877 Swan Lake story was very complicated and it had multiple bad guys uh, enchanted objects, uh, a lot of dialogue, um, that had to be done in pantomime. Just, there was just a lot. And it also really didn't reflect tastes of the 1890s. So, uh, the creators got Tchaikovsky's brother, Modeste to streamline the story. And Ricardo Drigo, who was a specialist ballet composer to rework the music. So he cut and pasted things to rework it with the new story. Um, moved things about, added a bit of Tchaikovsky's piano music and orchestrated it to make it work with this new storyline. And so that premiered in 1895. People loved it. And that production is the reason that you are going to see Swan Lake this afternoon, because people really enjoyed that. And it's been uh, sort of continually in repertoire in different companies around the world since. But that, per- that creates a bit of a problem. In 1895, Nobody cared that they were cutting and rearranging Tchaikovsky's music, even though this was being done in large part because they were interested in Tchaikovsky's music. It was just very accepted at the time that things would change for any given production of a ballet. But since then, in the 20th and 21st century, we've become more attached to the idea that we're seeing an artist's work, an artist that we care about, and we're seeing their whole work. And Swan Lake really challenges that, because if you really care about Tchaikovsky's work, you would see the 1877 version with the entire score as you wrote it. And if you really care about the Petipa Ivanov choreography, which many people really do, you would see the entire 1895 version from beginning to end. And you cannot make those two work. They do not go together. So every stager has to come up with some way of making this whole thing work. And so you end up with very different productions of Swan Lake. So there is, you can never see the Swan Lake, You can only ever see a Swan Lake. Um, So on the one hand, it's a problem, but it's also potentially uh, a really exciting opportunity for audiences, because you see something new in every production. Uh, So a Russian ballet critic that I I really admire, Valerian book, Denis Berezovsky, and his writing, um, wrote in the 1950s that uh, every time he went and saw Swan Lake, he was hoping to see uh the perfect swan lake and every time it was not perfect and that's why he kept going back and i feel very similarly every time i think this is going to be it this is going to be the perfect production and it never is exactly what i have in my head in part because it always does something different and delightful that i hadn't anticipated and it keeps me going back to see production after production over all of these different versions, there are some things that hold constant. So in particular, it is the theme um, of the sort of relationship between the human world and the magical world. This was a big theme in 19th century art in general. There are a lot of poems and novels and operas about this. And they were very interested in the idea that sort of magic could unlock something about the irrational parts of life that if you juxtapose human, the world we all live in with this sort of potential other spiritual world, you'd understand sort of uh, all the emotional and irrational things that drive us. So it comes up all the time in 19th century art, but was particularly a theme of 19th century ballet. And ballet was a really great place to explore this. Um, There are a lot of French ballets from the sort of early to mid 19th century that deal with it if you saw Pacific Northwest Ballets um, production of Giselle last year. That is one of these uh, ballets that deals with the human and magical world. So they tend to have one act in the human world and it's daylight. And then in act two, our main male character is lured out into the woods at night, where he confronts uh, magical creatures played by the uh, women of the court of ballet. So in Giselle, it's ghosts. In La Sophide, which is another famous one, it's fairies. Uh, and in Swan Lake, it is the Swan Maidens. And um, the these French ballets, uh, Giselle and Les Sophie, and ones like them, tended to be about half as long as uh, Russian ballets of the late 19th century, so Swan Lake does it twice. So we get Act 1, Human World, Act 2, Magic, Act 3, Human, Act 4, Magic, which also worked very well with this uh, way they divided up the choreography between Ivanov and Petipa. So they gave Petipa the two human acts. And his choreography did tend to feature sort of um, really exquisite use of geometric lines on on the stage and traditional ballet vocabulary um, arranged really beautifully uh, to reflect the score in the moment. And Ivanov uh, was particularly interested in like unusual shapes uh, to reflect character. So he invented the famous swan arms that Mm -hmm. I that I can't do. Um, But you will see them uh, uh, in multiple moments of the ballet. Uh, So those kinds of interesting arm movements and these very soft shapes on stage. And you'll see all these sort of like curves and circles in Acts 2 and 4 that reflect a less rational ordering of the world. That duality, um, human and magic and day and night, is also reflected in the Choreography for the main character, the main role, is actually two different characters. So the ballerina is playing both Odette, the white swan, and Odile, the black swan. Odette appears in act two, and she's the white swan, she has her white costume, and she has this choreography that is very nuanced, very expressive, um, and very hard to to do for those reasons, because of its nuance and uh, control and delicacy. And act three, she plays Odile, the black swan, who is sort of the evil doppelganger of Odette. And her choreography is um, more sort of stunningly technical and virtuosic, and also she has to play this sort of seductive evil version of the character. So each each act is very difficult to do on its own, and having one dancer who could do these two different kind of contrasting styles of dance is, is very, very hard. Um, the original, the original performer was an Italian ballerina by the name of Pirina Lignani, um, who was brought in as a virtuoso, uh, for the Marinsky Ballet, and she was known for having steel toes, uh, because she could do so much in point, uh, including her most famous trick was to be able to do 32 fuetes in a row. Um, so this is a kind of whipped turn, and you have to stay on your toe for a very long time. She did it in every ballet that she was in, including Swan Lake, uh, thus dooming now (laughs) 130 years of ballerinas to try to duplicate this feat. Um, And uh, it's one of the difficult things and it still challenges ballerinas today. So I am now going to tell you uh, the story of Swan Lake that so you can follow along uh, when ballet separated out from opera in the 19th century and started telling its own sort of long-form stories on stage the great rule sort of became you can't speak so you had to tell the whole story without ever saying dialogue on stage so they got around this in a bunch of different ways they would use musical melodies that would remind their audience of various things and help conjure the story They would sometimes do my favorite cheat that I've read about, which is like you could have a sign on stage that said something like (laughs) evil castle, like castle with the evil magician is that way. (laughs) Um, But the two main things that they relied on uh, were pantomime. So pantomime is a type of silent acting where there's a set of there's a set vocabulary of gestures, that the the dancers perform a gesture and the audience knows the word that goes with that and so knows what they're saying. And then the other one is that they expected the audience to read the story in advance uh, and so know what was happening on stage as it happened. So there are no plot spoilers in ballet, so I am going to tell you the whole story from beginning to end. So we open in Act One in the human world at the birthday of Prince Siegfried, our main character. And uh, he is celebrating with dances by his friends. Um, His tutor is also there. His tutor likes to get a little drunk. Um, And he has a jester who attends him, uh, who does this sort of virtuosic turning and jumping choreography. And in the middle of this party walks his mother, the queen, who is the reigning monarch. And she gives him a silver crossbow as a birthday gift, and tells him he has to get married. Uh, And so this is the first pantomime gesture you should really know, which is marriage in ballet is you point at your ring finger. And so she goes. (laughs) And then you learn the second important gesture that you'll have to know this afternoon, which is no. (laughs) So he immediately says, absolutely not. Uh, And in pantomime, you, this is no, and you negate the gesture you just did. So he goes, and she tells him again that he is going to get married, and then storms off. And so he's left very sad. His friends try to cheer him up with more exciting dancing. Um, but he ends the act as the sun is going down, quite depressed about this idea that he's going to have to get married when he sees flying over the head of the audience, these swans. And he runs out, decides to go out into the woods hunting with his friends. So that's the end of that. Act <laughs> 2 opens, uh, and we're in the woods at night, giant moon, and we see Rothbart, the evil magician, who's the bad guy of the story, and he's out there with swans as we hear this swan melody appear. They're just on briefly and walk off And then Siegfried comes in, he gets separated from his friends, and he encounters Odette. So she is a princess who has been transformed into a swan. So by day she is a swan, and only by night in the woods can she transform into a woman. And she tells Siegfried about her curse, and they dance. Now in the 19th century, there was a sort of long pantomime speech where she lays out how the curse works. Pantomime became less uh, popular in the 20th and 21st century, so most productions, including this one, cut that pantomime uh, speech in favor of a duet where they meet and he tries to catch her and they flirt a bit. Um, And we are just, as the audience, to understand that at some point in that, she explained to him how the curse works. And the way it works is that she will remain a swan by day until a man falls in love with her and promises to love her and stays true to her. And Rothbard comes in and has a bit of a confrontation. um, And then the rest of the act is actually taken up with these dances between Siegfried and Odette and with the rest of the swan maidens. And this was pretty characteristic of the magical acts. In in the human acts of these ballets, the dancing has some sort of reason for it. Uh, Like you're at a party, you're at a ball, you're at a harvest festival. And in the magical acts, the dancing just happens because we don't need a reason for it. It's magic. Uh, and they're magical creatures, so why wouldn't they dance? And and in some ways, they're sort of seducing you into the magic as well as the audience. So most of act two is this mm, mm, sorry, <laughs> magical set of dances with those soft Ivanov lines um, amongst the swan maids. So act two ends with Siegfried very spittin'. Act three is back in the human world at a ball that the Queen is throwing to introduce Siegfried to potential brides. So she's brought in six princesses and he's going to have to pick one. They're from different countries. And we also see dances from different countries. This was another obsession of 19th century ballet was to see uh, different national folk dances. And so you often get these suites of national dances and in this production. There's um, Hungary, Spain, Naples, um, Poland, and then a dance that was actually originally written to be for Russia, but in this production is for Persia. And we see all of those. And the queen asks Siegfried to pick one of the six women to get married. We see the gesture again. And again, he says no, but he's getting increasingly desperate when in walks in Rothbart with Odile. Uh, So, she looks a lot like Odette. We, the audience, know this is Odile. This is the evil doppelganger version of Odette, who's come here to deceive Siegfried. But Siegfried is very confused. She looks a lot like Odette. He's quite, in, quite uh, dazzled by her beauty, and the two of them dance this very virtuosic duet, sort of all the fireworks that Petit Pao could put together. And at the end of it, um, Siegfried tells his mother, this is the person I want to marry. And Rothbart asks him, do do you love her? And love is two hands over the heart. And Siegfried says, yes, I love her. And then Rothbart asks a faithful question, which is, do you promise to love her forever? And that gesture in ballet is one hand over the heart and two fingers up. So So there are. Three different gestures for marriage, love, and I promise to love forever. They're different, but you do have to know all three of them. And so Siegfried says, yes, I promise to love her forever. And at that moment, Odile reveals that she is not Odette, and in fact, Odette is behind the window trying to get Siegfried's attention, and he hasn't seen her, and they deceived him, he's now incapable of breaking Odette's curse, and she's going to remain a swan forever. And so they laugh at him and flee out into the woods, and Siegfried runs out after them to try to find Odette uh, and beg her forgiveness. So that's the end of Act 3. And everything that I told you up till now is pretty standard for all productions of Swan Lake no matter where you see them, there's like a minor character added here and there. They don't all have justers. Um, The best friend is sometimes a bigger deal, but mostly that's what you see. Act four is different in all the different productions. So this is a choose your own ending kind of situation. The original 1877 production, uh, Odette was protected by a magical crown. And when Siegfried went out into the woods, goes out into the woods to pay her forgiveness, she doesn't forgive him, and in a fit of pique, he tears the crown off her head, throws it into the lake, and she dies. Which is... a choice? You can kind of see why they changed it in 1895. The ending was that um, he begs her forgiveness, she forgives him, but she can't live life as a swan, so she throws herself into the lake, and he throws himself into the lake after her, and uh, their sacrifice in this moment is powerful enough to break Rothbart's spell and kill Rothbart and the other swan maidens are freed from their curse and transform back into women. So that that ending is used in a number of different productions. Uh, There was also a Soviet tradition of uh, making a happy ending. So uh, Rothbart and Siegfried get into a fight And uh, Siegfried rips off Rothbart's wing. Rothbart appears as an owl in these productions. Uh, So he rips off the wing and Rothbart dies, ending the curse. And everybody lives happily ever after as a human. So that's still used uh, in a number of productions that descend from those Soviet versions. And then in the late 20th century, you get a number of purely tragic endings. And that is what you are going to see today. So in this version, Siegfried finds her debt, begs her forgiveness, she forgives him, but that doesn't change the fact that he has ruined this opportunity and she is going to remain a swan forever. So after um, this begging forgiveness and this sad, tearful goodbye, she um, transforms back into a swan and flies off offstage. And he is left devastated, knowing that Not only has he lost the love of his life, uh, he has also doomed her to an eternity as a swan. Um, I love this ending. (laughs) Um, The music in the fourth act has these sort of increasingly dramatic versions of that oboe swan melody that we've been hearing. Getting ever sort of more and more dramatic until they sort of break and we get this just gorgeous ethereal wash of music that um, in many of these productions uh, is used for the transformation back into a human. So all the happy ending and this sort of uh, tragic 1895 ending it, um, is all the swan maidens turning back into humans. But in this version, it is still a transformation. It's just a transformation of Odette back into a swan instead. And that sort of beautiful, beautiful music cuts against our knowledge of the tragedy of the ending. Uh, And I think that juxtaposition is really powerful. It's also the way a lot of late 20th century movie scores work. Uh, It's Sort of one of the most powerful things that movie composers do is to compose something that cuts against what's happening on screen. Um, And I think my guess is that's why this type of ending started coming up in late 20th century versions of Swan Lake. But uh, I think it's very beautiful and very powerful. Um, but if you are sad, uh, at least know that there are other Siegfrieds and other Odettes who are out there living happily ever after. <laughs> um, and so I hope you enjoy seeing a Swan Lake this afternoon. Uh, we actually have three minutes left. Uh, if, we, if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them to the best of my knowledge. So there's an article in the Seattle Times recently that talked about like the different wing movements that the dancer uses as a dandruff. Will we be able to actually, like the untrained eye, be able to see that? I think so. I mean, uh, you'll definitely see the wings. Like, they didn't give me slides, so I can't show you. If I I had, I would show you. You'll definitely see the wings. Uh, And then there's another one that the core uses that's a sort of like this that also, depicts their swanness. Um, I will say the individual ballerinas who perform Odette Odile do tend to use some sort of fluttery swan movements, as opposed to a kind of more rounded arm. So the fluttery ones kind of usually mean she's a swan, and the rounded ones mean she's a human. Um, Different dancers choose to do that different ways. And I actually have it. This is my first opportunity this afternoon, is to see uh, the cast that you're going to see, so I, I can't comment on what she does. I do think you can tell, and you can definitely tell at the end of Act Four when she moves back into being one. So I do think you'll be able to, to, to notice that. So I've seen a DVD of um, Muriel's choreography. Yeah. Did he do anything special? Uh, I... Oh, I. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. If you, if you go onto the uh, forum, Ballet Alert, uh, there's like three of the top threads in ballet history are like the different versions of Swan Lake. Um, My memory is that Nuryan actually did change quite a bit. I think he restored what, I'm gonna get this wrong, but he did use I think some of the older music is my my memory and changed things around a lot um, from the sort of traditional 1895 descended productions which were very common in Europe at the time um, but I don't remember further what the exact precise things that he did were. I came in a couple minutes late, and I missed your name and your position. Oh, uh, my name is Annie Searcy, and I'm an assistant professor of music history at the University of Washington. Oh. Thank you all. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the performance today.